Welcome to the Reasoned Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Thank you very much for joining me for today's episode of the Reason Hope Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at uh, what many sometimes see as a confusion between the attributes of God. And by the attributes of God, I mean the aspects of the nature of God that the Bible talks about. And two of these that are often very misunderstood are God's love and God's wrath. But before we get into that, uh, I just want to mention that if this is a podcast that you enjoy, uh, that you benefit from, or you know others who might also enjoy it, please uh, be sure to follow the podcast uh, wherever you're getting it from, whether that's on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcast or anywhere else. Um, as well, feel free to reach out via email at reasonhopepodcast at gmail.com for any questions or comments or anything of that sort, uh, as well as we have a website, reasonhopepodcast.com. So those are just some other places that you can find out more information uh, about the show. And um, I hope that you'll tell others who you think might be interested. So today's episode, uh, we're going to be getting into looking at uh, what, what I think is a confusion about the attributes of God. And part of understanding what Christianity is, is that you have to know accurately what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. So some episodes, uh, many episodes in this podcast, we spend looking at objections to the Christian faith and thinking about why reasons people have for not believing in Christianity or questions that Christians themselves may have about their faith and that they want to know the answers to or see if there's good answers to. So a large portion of this podcast we do spend on looking at objections of that sort, questions of that sort uh, to Christianity because it's extremely important to not only uh, know what Christianity teaches, but but why you should actually think it's true. And, and that goes for people who are uh, followers of Jesus, uh, of, of course. It also goes for those who, who may be considering Christianity and want to know more about it. So today's episode, we're going to look at this idea of God's love versus God's wrath. Many think that the love of God uh, and the wrath of God are somehow opposed to each other, or uh, that you really can't have both, or that you shouldn't try to, that this can create a lot of confusion. What we want to do is look at what the Bible teaches about the love of God and the wrath of God. So the first big problem that I think many people have when it comes to who God is, is that oftentimes we first approach the question of who God is by thinking that who God is like, what God is like, is determined more by what we would prefer to be the case. So if if this is true, then it would mean that the standard for determining what is true about God is actually located within ourselves. So it becomes much more about our own preferences, what we would prefer God to be like or what we would prefer God not to be like. And this is the framework from which many people approach 
thinking about God and what God is like if you were to ask them. And I think Tim Keller makes a good point here. He's he's talking about uh, prayer, what prayer is, and he spends time talking about how uh, for Christians, when when we pray to God, our understanding of who God is is extremely important for our prayer lives. And so this means that we are going to have to be accurately informed about the character of and the nature of God. And so speaking about the importance of this and, and how Christians' prayers should be rooted in what the Bible teaches about God, he says this, quote, Without immersion in God's words, that is the Bible, our prayers may not be merely limited and shallow, but also untethered from reality. We may be responding not to the real God, but to what we wish God and life to be like. Indeed, if left to themselves, our hearts will tend to create a God who doesn't exist. People from Western cultures want a God who is loving and forgiving, but not holy and transcendent. Studies of the spiritual lives of young adults in Western countries reveal that their prayers, therefore, are generally devoid of both repentance and of the joy of being forgiven. Without prayer that answers the God of the Bible, we will only be talking to ourselves. End quote. So Keller says a lot there, but his essential point is that if, if, if your prayers to God are not rooted in accurate Uh, teaching about who God is from the Bible, then you will essentially be praying to a God that you have constructed out of your own making. It will be a God um, formed by your own preferences and your own tastes. And uh, what what he speaks of uh, there towards the middle part, he says people from Western cultures want a God who is loving and forgiving, but not holy and transcendent. And then he goes on to speak about how uh, many people's prayers are devoid of both repentance and of the joy of being forgiven. So there we see a little bit of these um, attributes of God. We have God's love and his forgiveness on the one hand, and then we have God's uh, holiness. And then we have this idea of repentance coming up and forgiveness, meaning that in order for God to forgive us of something, then we must have done something wrong. So this brings up the idea of sin. So... um, even in, in looking at what Keller says about prayer here, we get a sense for where many people uh, are when it comes to this relationship between God's love and forgiveness and then his wrath. And many people think that there is a uh, kind of a war between these two things. But before we get more into that, I, I want to spend some time just talking about maybe some reasons why this approach to uh, God's love and God's wrath and, and God as a whole, his attributes— why, why this seems to be the case. There's this tendency for us to create God in our own image, as it were. And I think part of this is that many people view the Bible a certain way. Many people do not think that the Bible is historical. They don't think that it tells us what is true about the world or uh, what what's true that happened in the past, that, that it doesn't actually tell us these things. Many people think that it's really just a book of In the crudest formulations, people will say it's comparable to um, Aesop's fables. Uh, It's just a book of fables, fairy tales. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about it like that. And other people will just say, well, it has some nice moral teaching in it, but we really shouldn't take it too seriously as actually giving us facts about the world. You know, we certainly don't want to go that far. The Bible has its place for some moral teachings, but other than that, it's not of much use. 
And so what this reduces the Bible to is that it's not historical, it doesn't tell us what is true about the world, and as such, the books of the Bible, Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end, from this perspective, that whole story is not a unified account of the way reality is. It is just the writings of people over many thousands of years writing about what they thought that God told them or what they thought that God was like. So I think that's one reason. It's how you understand the Bible. If the Bible is not historical, if it doesn't actually tell us objectively about who God is, uh, then of course all it is is a human book. And so therefore that would leave us in a position of constructing God how we want him to be. Another thing is that many people think that if if we are getting our, our information about the character and the nature of God from the Bible, this is somehow opposed to genuine spirituality. So for many people, if you are reading the Bible and you're going to the Bible to learn about who God is, then this seems too restrictive. And it seems too much like what many would say is organized religion. Many people want a spirituality that they, from, from their view, is, is, is freed from such limitations. We don't want to be limited to a book like the Bible to tell us about God and what God is like. We want to be free to connect with God on our own and to explore God on our own, to explore spirituality um, unhindered. And so for many people, the Bible itself, even if it was something that told us about God, it's restrictive. And so they they push away from this. They see it as opposed to genuine spirituality. And for people like this, uh, coming from that perspective, what it really shows is that this is a particular view on spirituality. And on that view, this would mean that true spirituality is about pursuing what you find meaningful and fulfilling. And it's really apart from any standard outside of yourself. Because if spirituality is all about you or, or, or me pursuing just what makes us happy or what we find fulfilling, then it's really not ultimately about what is true. It's about what we like. It's about what we prefer. And some would even say that this is what it means for a religion to be true. A religion is true if it fulfills you, if it makes you happy, if, it, if you find it meaningful. That's what makes it true. And no one can tell you that you're mistaken if your religious choice, so to speak, is made on that basis. So that is one way that some people approach spirituality. And so when it comes to the attributes of God or questions about what God is like, particularly when it comes to how you understand God's love and God's wrath, many times these types of views uh, have a, a great impact on how people think about this. So this is a really important issue. Um, if there is a God and God is a certain way, if God is love, as the Bible says, and if God is, if God does have wrath against that which is evil, which the Bible also says, and these are important things that we need to think about and take into account and understand what they mean. If that really is true, we don't want to have a false understanding about the Bible on the one hand that, that would lead us to not take it seriously. 
We also don't want to have a misguided view of what truth is in religion or what true spirituality is. So um, those can be hindrances to getting a clear picture on the Bible's teaching about God's love and God's wrath. Now that we've just kind of gone over some introductory things about this, I think it's important to look at an example of how a confusion about the relationship between God's love and and his wrath is commonly expressed. And I think the chief thing here is that many people, they revolt against the idea of God's wrath. Uh, We don't really want to talk about the wrath of God. And by the wrath of God, I mean God's punishment of that which is evil, God's anger towards sin, his opposition to all that is that is wrong. And in general, that might rub some people the wrong way. But where it gets personal is when uh, the Bible starts speaking about the reality of sin and how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and how all of us are guilty before God. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But that that's where many people push back. They, they don't like the idea of a God who would punish people or a God who would send people to hell or anything like that. But on the other hand, people are ready to embrace the idea of God's love and his forgiveness. And so this creates a tension in people's minds. They reject uh, a God of wrath, as many would say, and they embrace a God of love and his forgiveness. And so one place that that I found something like this, a statement like this, is in a TV show uh, called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's uh, it's from the Marvel Universe, and it's a really good show. And there's a lot of spiritual themes in it. And in one episode, there's a conversation between two characters, and one character says she's a Christian, and bad things have been happening to her, and she thinks that God is punishing her for something that she did wrong. And so the whole episode, she thinks that she's being punished by God for something that she did. And the other character is an atheist, or she's someone who says she doesn't believe in God. But these two characters start talking about God. And the the character who uh, was an atheist, said she doesn't believe in God. She she grew up in a Catholic orphanage, and so she has she had some exposure to teaching from the Bible. And this is what she says. She says, quote, The only religious story that stuck with me was something Sister McKenna said. God is love. It's simple and a little sappy, but that's the version I like. God is love, the thing that holds us together. And if that's true, I don't think he'd punish you for making a mistake. I think he'd forgive a mistake. End quote. So notice what we see there in that quote. The idea of God is love is brought up, and the Bible certainly does teach that. That's from uh, that particular verse is from uh, the book of First John in the New Testament. So the Bible does teach that God is love. But the character goes on to say it's simple and a little sappy. But that's the version I like. God is love. So notice there that this is an expression of something that this character likes. This is a a certain view about how we think about God. If we like certain things about God, we embrace those things. If we don't like others, we don't embrace those. And we can kind of have God on our own terms, so to speak. And of course, the idea of God is love in this quote Um, 
God is love, the thing that holds us together. So, of course, this is sort of reducing God to sort of this loving force that binds us all together, um, which is not really what the Bible teaches. But the, the point in quoting this is just to illustrate that you will find this attitude in many places. On the one hand, we have uh, an angry God of wrath, and on the other hand, we have a God of love who is forgiving. This is the way many people think about God. So they reject the idea of God's wrath. They are ready to embrace the idea of God's love. And the question that I want to raise in looking at this is, is that a good way to think about the God of the Bible? Is it really true that the God of the Bible is not wrathful towards that which is evil? And can we have God on our own terms in that way? Can we just pick and choose what attributes of God that we like? So those are two important questions we'll continue to explore. Now, I want to spend some time looking at why, why is it that people react this way or tend to react this way towards God's love on the one hand and his wrath on the other. And I think there's probably many reasons for this, but at least a few of them uh, we can talk about here. And I think one is that many people think that God's punishment, so if God punishes people, if God punishes human beings, this seems distasteful and unwarranted. So it brings up questions like, do people really deserve this? Uh, You talk about uh, some of the examples of God's judgment in the Bible. Uh, We can think about the flood. We can think about uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, even when you go to the book of Revelation and you read what that talks about at the return of Jesus and God's wrath being poured out on people who are rebelling against him. So these things are in the Bible. But many people want to ask, is this something that human beings are really deserving of? And so, of course, this is going to bring up the idea of sin and how we understand sin. Are human beings really sinful before God, or are we basically good on our own and undeserving of wrath? Um, and so once you start delving into to what's behind some of this, you really come to the teaching of sin and how someone thinks about the, the reality of sin. Um, so that's the first question. Do people really deserve to be punished? Uh, Are we really that bad? Have we really done things deserving of God's wrath? The other question is, is God really like that? And this, of course, goes back to how do we understand the nature of God and the attributes of God? People don't want to believe that God is a God who punishes people. Uh, They don't want to believe that he's a God who uh, has uh, wrath against sinful people. So I think those that's one reason that God punishing seems distasteful and unwarranted. Now the other reason I think that that people have this aversion to the wrath of God is that God's wrath represents a direct challenge to what is seen as the ultimate good in our day and its individual autonomy. Now this is nothing new. Um, if you read the book of Genesis, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they disobeyed his command um, not to, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were essentially seeking to be God themselves. They were seeking to live independently of God, and they didn't trust God. So individual autonomy, the, the pursuit of us living whatever way we please and living apart from God, this is 
nothing new, but it is heavily emphasized, especially in Western culture today. So individual autonomy says that the chief value in life, as well as the definition of true freedom, is that human beings should be free to express themselves and live as they please. And this means that any form of accountability to God would be a threat to that kind of freedom. So this is a particular understanding of what the good life is. From this view, the good life is I should be able to live however I want, and I should have no outside interference from God in my life. Because if God interferes with me at all, that's a threat to my freedom. And so, of course, if God is wrathful against people for uh, sin, then this means human beings do things which are morally wrong, and it means that we are held accountable to God. So God's wrath is a direct challenge to the way many people want to live their lives. All of us have this bent. We want to live our lives the way we want to live them. And so if the wrath of God is true, it means that we're accountable to him, and this is something that people will push back on. And I think maybe a final reason here why people are um, averse to the wrath of God is that God's love is easier for people to accept, at least on the surface, I, I think. But I think the problem here is that when we talk about the love of God, many times the love of God is not understood from a biblical perspective. So this gets back to Tim Keller's quote at the beginning where he was talking about prayer and how if your prayers are not informed by who God really is from the Bible, then you're going to be praying to a God of your imagination, a God that you've made up. So um, many people think of the love of God, not according to the Bible's teaching, but they think that God's love means that he approves of whatever we want to do in life and that he just wants us to be happy. So God doesn't really care what you do as long as you are happy, as long as you don't maybe hurt other people. But even how we understand that can be uh, different as well. So this is how many people think of God's love, that God just approves of whatever we do. And it really, it's a kind of love that has no accountability to it. But again, the chief problem here is that if we don't understand the love of God accurately, we end up molding that to suit our own tastes and preferences. And so the love of God is something that doesn't challenge us, uh, doesn't help us grow, doesn't cause us to be directed towards uh, the truth. Rather, the love of God becomes something that basically helps us pursue our own preferences and desires uh, to the exclusion of the Bible's uh, teaching. So I think this is the human tendency that all of us face. It's how we're bent. We make gods to suit our own tastes and preferences. And so this is why it's so important that we have an outside standard to inform us and remind us of who God is and what he is like. Now, I want to be clear as we move further into this that all of this that we've talked about so far is applicable to Christians and non-Christians. Uh, we, we all need to be accurately informed about um, who the God of the Bible really is. And this uh, discussion about how do we understand the love of God, how do we understand the wrath of God, is a key place where this is so important. 
So what does the Bible teach about the relationship between God's love and God's wrath? Well, the first thing that it's good to emphasize is that the Bible teaches that God is holy. And that means a lot of things, but it essentially means that God is pure. And it means that he's righteous. It means that he is uh, essentially, in his own nature, perfectly good. So there's no evil in him. He cannot do wrong. Uh, He does not do anything unjust. He's perfect in all his ways. So God's holiness is central to who he is. And there's many places that we could go in the Bible to, to look at the holiness of God and its implications for how we should respond to God. But a a great passage is from the book of Isaiah in in the Old Testament. And it's in chapter 6, and it's chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And this is the prophet Isaiah. He's having a vision of uh, who God is. And he is reminded and shown in a very powerful way what it means for God to be holy. And so this is Isaiah recounting this uh, vision that he had of God. So it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, which are angels, were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So in this vision, Isaiah sees God, and he sees that these angels are uh, constantly worshiping God, constantly around him, and they're calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. So it is this threefold repetition of this attribute of God. And when Isaiah sees this, his response is to say, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. So as soon as Isaiah has this vision of who God is, once he understands the holiness of God, he realizes his own sin. He realizes his own impurity before a God who is perfect uh, goodness, before a God who is holy. And this is this teaches us a lot about the holiness of God because it tells us that we we are not Uh, okay on our own. We are not basically good people uh, doing okay who make a few mistakes here and there. Our situation is much worse than that because we are accountable to God who is holy and we're accountable to a God who is perfect in all his ways and who has no darkness in him at all. And yet when we are compared to that standard, to his perfection, all of us are deeply flawed. All of us deeply fall short, and we need his mercy. And that point will become very important later on. But this is just one place that we can go where the Bible emphasizes the holiness of God. Now, Psalm 89.14 is another passage that talks about how God is righteous and just in all that he does. And it says this, 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. So God's righteousness and his justice are, again, expressions of his perfect goodness, his perfect nature. He always does what is right. Uh, He always rights wrongs, and it says faithful love and truth go before you. So God is faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his people, and he's a God of truth. So everything that God does is perfectly uh, just, it's perfectly right. And this is also important for what it means for God to be holy. He is perfect in his uh, entire being, and we, we are accountable to him. Now, another part of what it means for God to be holy, if God is good like this, if he's holy and good like this, then it means he necessarily hates all that is evil, all that is morally corrupt, all that is uh, sinful, to use the Bible's language. So in Psalm 5, uh, verses 4 through 6, it's very clear when it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Now, first of all, God is not a God who delights in wickedness. He's a God who loves what is good, what is right, and what is true. So he is opposed to all that is wicked and evil. Evil cannot dwell with you, is what it says. So evil cannot be in God's presence. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When it says that he hates all evildoers, this is not uh, human hate. You know, we think about hate from a human level. Hate from a human level is something that, that is not a good thing because uh, we're, we're sinful and it results from um, many different things. It could be envy of someone else. It could be an, an attitude of vengeance toward people that just poisons us. Bitterness, vengeance towards someone else might cause us to hate them. Jesus talked about how if you hate someone in your heart, then this is the essence of murdering someone. Uh, Murder is the natural outward expression of hate and malice that is built up in the heart towards another person. But God's, when the Bible uses the language to talk about God hating sin and God hating those who do evil, it's not a human kind of hate. It is a natural response of a perfectly good God who Uh, hates wickedness to respond with wrath against all that which is heinous. So it is a right response of a good God towards all that is morally corrupt. And of course, that puts us in a very bad situation because the Bible is also very clear that every human being has sinned against God, that we've broken his commandments and that we're guilty before him. This is why the love of God and the forgiveness of God is so important. But we have to understand the bad news first of where we all stand before God before we can truly appreciate the love and the forgiveness of God. Now, another passage that talks about uh, how God is holy and that he hates sin and evil is from 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. And this is what uh, John says here. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but the, the point to emphasize here is that John says God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. So John is saying he's using this imagery of light and darkness to describe, on the one hand, if God is light, this means he's pure. It means he's holy. It means he's good and there's no darkness in him. So He's perfect. There's no evil in him at all. God can't do evil. And then he goes on to say, if we as as people, he's talking to Christians, he's saying if we as Christians say we have fellowship with him, so if someone claims to know God and yet they walk in ways contrary to God's ways, if they walk in darkness, he says we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is exhorting his readers there and us today to to be reminded of the holiness of God as well as um, the love of God. And when we have a right response to that, he says, we will be those who are walking in the light as God himself is in the light. We'll have fellowship with God, and the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all our sin. So here is where uh, we, we start to see how the holiness of God helps us reflect upon our own spiritual need for him and his mercy. And then this should lead us to seek the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ, where we can see, where we can receive forgiveness for all our sin. But I want to be very clear here that while many people resist the idea of sin, first of all, it is the most empirically verified reality that we know. We all do wicked things. Um, and we can always compare ourselves to the next person who we think is worse off than we are. But the problem is that that's how we think about ourselves. We're, we're terrible at estimating our own goodness and our own badness, so to speak. The standard that all of us are held accountable to is not other people. It's God himself, And this is why the goodness of God is actually bad news for us at first. Because if God is truly good, if he's truly holy, like the Bible says he is, then this means he must necessarily be opposed to that which is evil. He must punish evil. He must make every wrong right. And he must hold people that uh, break uh, his law accountable. And of course, all of us have done that. So the Bible is also clear in many other places that left to ourselves, uh, we are under the wrath of God for our sins. And that is a, that, that's the bad news. And that's what we have to understand first. So God's wrath is something that is the right response towards that which is wrong. And as we'll talk about later, uh, this is actually a good thing. It's good 
that God is a God of wrath, even if we may initially resist this. So we've talked about God's holiness, and we've talked about what that means. Uh, What about God's love? So if God is holy, this means that he's wrathful against that which is evil. But how does his love fit into this? I mentioned earlier that the, the chief way that most people think about the love of God is that God is kind of this grandfather in the sky type figure. He just wants everybody to be happy and to get along. And he really doesn't care how we live. Um, and he's really not interested in that. Um, he just wants us to be happy. And that is how many people think about the love of God. But of course, um, that's not what the Bible teaches about the love of God. The Bible is very clear that God's love is revealed in a very particular way, and that's in the cross of Jesus Christ. So if we look at 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, uh, we read this. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So John is essentially saying, he says, yes, God is love. Love is uh, central to God's nature. God's holiness and God's love are central to who he is, and you cannot separate the two. God's uh, love is a holy love, and we see here that John is saying that God's love was revealed in Jesus Christ. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So he's saying we don't have true life apart from Jesus. Left to ourselves, we're under God's wrath for our sins, and we're enslaved to our sins, and we're guilty, and we don't have any hope left to ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus said, I came to give life and life abundantly. And that's what John is talking about here. And it's not that we deserve this. No one deserves the love of God. Uh, But love consists in this, not that we loved God. None of us loved God on our own but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God is the one who initiated. God is the one who came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he died for our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross, rose again on the third day, defeated sin and death, and this is how that we can receive the forgiveness our sins. It's how we can be cleansed. John said earlier, it is through the blood of Jesus that we are cleansed from all of our sin. So when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God himself taking upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins against God. Jesus took the full wrath of God uh, that we deserve upon himself, and he was punished in our place and then died and rose again. He died the death we deserve to die, and he rose again so that all those who put their trust in him might be reconciled to God, might know God's love and God's forgiveness. 
So reflecting upon how the wrath of God and the love of God relate, it should lead us straight to the cross of Jesus Christ, where, yes, we have to face the reality of our own wickedness, that we have sinned against God in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And if you take the Ten Commandments as an example, and you go down each of those commandments, um, if you're honest with yourself, uh, we've, we've all broken every one of those commandments. And so when we realize that the standard that we're held accountable to is not ourselves or our own estimation of our goodness compared to somebody else, but it's a perfectly holy God, then this shows us how lost we are uh, left to ourselves. It shows us that we deserve uh, God's wrath for our sins, but the offer of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that God has not left us in that state, that he has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him and and to be spared the wrath that we deserve. So God's wrath is satisfied because Jesus Christ took it upon himself, and we can receive mercy because Jesus took the punishment in our place. But of course, we have to put our trust in what Jesus did. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've never done that before, I encourage you Uh, to think about this very seriously and to cry out to God and recognize what he's done for you and put your trust in him so that you might know know him, so that you might have your sins forgiven and um, that you might walk with him and know what true life is. So to conclude, God's love and his wrath are not opposed to one another like many people think, but they're expressions of his perfect holiness and goodness. God hates sin. And he hates all that is evil, and that's why he is wrathful towards evil. But he loves those who do not love him, and that's where the work of Jesus Christ on the cross comes in. We did not love God. He loved us first. And there's a quote from a Christian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He says something very insightful about the wrath of God. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the, of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So, Wolf there really helps us understand that God's wrath against sin is because 
He's love. God loves the world that he's created, and sin and evil are, are, are like a cancer on the world that, that destroys his good creation. And so he is opposed to all of that which is evil. Uh, another example could be a judge. If a judge is a good judge, then he will make sure justice gets done. And the Bible teaches that since God is opposed to sin, then this means that uh, in the end, his offer of mercy through Jesus Christ is, is the way that we can be made right with him. But if we choose to reject that, then we will stand before God in our sin and in our guilt. And that's not a place that anybody uh, should want to be. And so the offer of God's mercy is wide open, and he calls for people to turn from their sin and trust in, in Jesus to receive that forgiveness. But um, it's really important to see that God's love and his wrath are not opposed to each other, but they work together. And I think if people are going to continue to reject the teaching of God's wrath, then they have to ignore a vast amount of the Bible. Uh, because there's plenty of examples of God punishing wickedness in the Bible. Now, people who reject the idea of God's wrath, oftentimes this is done in the name of God's love. But despite the problems that we just saw in the quote from Wolf that God's love and his wrath are actually closely related, if we reject the teaching of God's wrath in the name of his love, the result is that really the love of God is emptied of its rich biblical content. So in other words, it becomes something that just fits whatever we want it to be. Whatever the love of God means to us, that's what it means. And so it really doesn't have any grounding apart from our own preferences. And this is just to create a God in our own image, and it's a rejection of the God of the Bible. So if we're concerned about who the God of the Bible really is, that's not a path that we should take. And the final thing that I want to say here is that this idea of freedom, many people think that seeking out who God is in the Bible responding to the things that he said, turning from sin, uh, trusting in Jesus, following him instead. Many people think that this is restrictive, and they think that it is not true freedom. They think true freedom is basically living however we want without any regard to God. And I just want to say that true freedom is actually found in Jesus himself. It's found in following him. Jesus actually taught that it's, it's when we are slaves to sin that this is what enslaves us. So living in our sin is slavery. Living for Jesus is actually true freedom in life. And so Jesus says this. He says, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I hope that today's episode has been uh, encouraging to you, challenging to you in some good ways, giving you some good things to think about as we've considered uh, the love of God and the wrath of God, and just how to think about God's attributes as a whole, how to think about the Bible, and what this might mean for you wherever you're at in your spiritual search. But I thank you for taking the time to listen today, and please remember that there is a reason for hope in Jesus Christ.